Welcome to Cyberspectives, a podcast that provides insights and analysis on the technology, policy, and legal issues associated with ensuring cybersecurity in an increasingly complex technology environment. Our guest today is Chris Bronk, who is an Assistant Professor of Computer and Information Systems and Associate Director of the Center for Information Security, Research, and Education at the University of Houston. His research is focused in the area of cyber geopolitics, with additional work in organizational innovation, knowledge management, and intelligence studies. Prior to joining the University of Houston, Chris was an Information Technology Policy Fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute. Previously, he was a software developer at a technology startup and then worked as a foreign service officer. Chris, welcome to Cyberspectives. Thank you for having me. So the first question is, a lot of your work has looked at what you call cyber geopolitics. What are some of the specific ways you see cyber shaping geopolitics in the coming years? Well, I think there are narrow and uh, broader interpretations of what cyber is for starters. So that's something we need to think about. But essentially, you know, the question is, how is the internet being employed to change political outcomes, to change international relations, um, to make movements among peoples and publics around the world? Um, and in the next few years, uh, you know, if we look backward, uh, we can see a lot of activity that's gone on. And uh, you look at the activism around the landmine issues and what email did in making you know, a landmine ban happen. So we've seen these kind of positive experiences like that, in my opinion. Um, and what I think we're seeing for the future for the next few years out is um, a kind of a frightening uh, space in which people are going to um, have their online lives um, impact maybe their thinking, their actions, uh, the ideas that they embrace as true or false. Um, you know, I've heard the term panopticon thrown around, you know, that nothing is true and everything is true all at the same time. Uh, so, you know, that's the broad side of cyber is the, the internet is an information space where so many people spend so much time. Um, and then the more narrow issue is uh, the cybersecurity. So uh, definitely cybersecurity as a problem in which organizations, people, uh, governments uh, can't control uh, the confidentiality of their information. Um, they lose uh, control of the integrity of their information um, and possibly even um, have incidents in which physical uh, phenomena uh, occur because of computer-based attack. So interesting. Okay. And so um, in terms of U.S. national security, do you think we face more of a threat from potential, the potential for overt cyber attacks uh, on critical infrastructure, you know, the sort of proverbial, you know, someone you know, throws a switch somewhere and, you know, a big chunk of the United States loses power or something, uh, or from the use of cyber methods by non-U.S. actors to exert covert influence on things like U.S. policies and elections. I guess the question is, which, which of those you know, worries you more? Can I, can I uh, defer and say both? Of course. Um, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> you can say anything you want. Um, you know, anything that keeps uh, much of America eating canned goods in the dark is, of course, frightening. Um, looking at the cyber kinetic energy problem is a lot of what I do today. Uh, living in Houston, Texas, energy issues are, of course, paramount. Uh, and the projects that we've worked on um, in the last year or two have been on energy systems and the types of computers that touch them. So I'm going to say that, that, that 
the infrastructure issue is a discrete issue that we can address. Um, it's not easy. Uh, there's a lot that can go wrong, but we have a good understanding of the systems that are in play and how they can be impacted. And we're learning fairly quickly, I think, um, when you look at corporations that do petrochemical work or do uh, pipeline work or refining, uh, they understand pretty quickly what the public risk issues are for them, and they understand how cyber can amplify those risks. And I think they're doing a lot of work to to mitigate it. And let me just 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 ask for clarification. When you're talking, you're essentially saying that that the, there is a pretty good ability to get a handle on the problem. You're talking specific to the energy sector, not to all you know, 16 or whatever DHS critical infrastructures. Is that right? Yes, I would I would, I would say that. And even uh, there are differences. So. Um, electricity, where it's it, there's rate paying uh, regulation, uh, government is is involved. Uh, it's difficult for those companies necessarily to scrape together the funds to do a lot. Whereas um, oil companies, when prices are high, and you have to look at oil and gas companies, I think at this point as large distributed energy supply chain firms. Uh, when times are good, they can do a lot in cybersecurity. Um, they have the resources to do so. When things get lean, it gets harder. But if you look at all the other infrastructure uh, areas, and the, the point I wanted to come to is this, um, you know, the question I think we have to ask on infrastructure at this point is, uh, to what degree does the US government need to get involved? And then even more difficult is, to what degree does the United States Department of Defense and uh, the agencies that, that comprise the intelligence community that are military uh, in nature, and even uh, the armed services themselves, what are they going to do about these issues? And, and what should they do and what can they do? And you know, how does that work? Yeah, that's a, a really interesting question. Yeah, and, and the simple answer is they, the Department of Defense has much more capability probably than any other organization on the planet in many regards. Um, and the hard sell now is we've built this edifice of, of cybersecurity in the Department of Homeland Security that is the lead agency for so much of the, this infrastructure uh, work, but does not necessarily have the resources that a United States Cyber Command or a national security agency has. And, you know, how do you address, address that disconnect? And it's not an easy question when you start looking. This is when the policy and legal gets complicated and you start looking at, uh, you know, you know, is this a law enforcement issue or not? Can the Department of Defense be involved? You know, you know is posse comitatus going to come into play? The problems like this. And generally, I think most of the, the military folks I talk to, when you start talking about those fundamentals of should the military be involved, they generally uh, seem pretty um, reluctant to engage. Okay, interesting. And how concerned are you about the second part of the question, you know, that is non-U.S. actors exerting covert influence on elections and policies? Uh, so these are, you know, these would be different, of course, from overt attacks on critical infrastructure. Well, I, I knew I was going to come to uh, uh, Edward Hallett Carr, who is a theoretician of international relations, who uh, wrote a great little book before World War II talking about power. Um, and we generally look at power on three legs when you're talking about a country. You know, military power, we understand that really well. Um, and then you have an economic power issue. We understand that pretty well. We're seeing a lot of talk about tariffs lately. Um, and then the final piece is information power, you know, which if we were having this conversation 70 years ago, we'd be talking about propaganda. 
what I think will happen uh, in this space is that national propaganda and counter-propaganda organizations are going to evolve fairly quickly. What I'm not seeing in the United States is that process. I mean, during the Cold War, we built a propaganda organ in the U.S. government um, that was independent of other agencies, the United States Information Agency, and its sole function was to inform the world about U.S. perspective, values, policy, all these kind of soft things. And we don't have that capability anymore. And the aggressor states, and I'm, you know, I'm primarily looking at Russia, but China is also a concern. Um, and now we have, you know, issues in, in other states as well. We're seeing emerging kind of influence, online influence capabilities in a number of developing nations. I mean, Turkey is one in, in particular. And then the flip side of it, censorship, um, which is also going on. Uh, so my personal litmus test on this lately has been Hungary. Uh, I think Hungary went from a pretty pretty typical post-Cold War emerging democracy to b becoming an incredibly autocratic state. It is still a member of the EU and NATO nonetheless. Um, and to a large degree, that has been by the successful man manipulation of public perspective, um, increasingly demonizing the other, you know, outsiders, immigrants, um, refugees and creating a strong isolationist um, reactionary uh, populace. And, you know, I think fundamentally what these campaigns mean is an erosion and weakening of, demo weakening of democracy in all of the Western democracies. And that's, uh, in the longer sense, much more chilling than, you know, some sort of petrochemical issue that kills a few hundred people. I mean, it, I know that that would be horrible. I mean, a cyber Bhopal would be the worst thing uh, to see possible as far as a cyber attack right now. However, uh, if democracies collapse, where does that leave us? It's a really sobering set of things to think about is where it leaves us for now. Um, yeah. What uh, one of your recent papers uh, was titled, uh, quote, engaging ISIS in cyberspace, close quote. Uh, and in terms of specifically of cyber threats, um, how much of a threat is posed by non-state actors like ISIS as compared with state actors like some of the countries that you mentioned? You know, I, I use kind of an informal five-point scale, uh, putting the best of the best at five and and the, the, uh, the weakest players at zero. And from what I've seen, now there have been efforts – for the, the jihadist groups, uh, and ISIS seems to be the banner holder for the moment, but you know, before that it was Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb. Um, these groups, I don't think we want to mistake their capacity to engage in good communication security, you know, teaching their adherents how to use encryption, how to hide their work, um, how to function on the internet without um, uh, being vulnerable to eavesdropping by national intelligence services, you know, whether it's ours or the French one or, or the Chinese one for that matter, because China has a large Islam problem um, that is becoming somewhat of a, a human rights disaster. But, but really what we're, we're looking at now is a situation in which we have, you know, nation state actors that can organize campaigns, can pull together lots of resources. And then we have non-state actors that, that can get 
maybe eager individuals, but cannot necessarily cobble together the resources to build a piece of source code um, that's going to break you know, uh, a power station. So I am not massively concerned about the ISIS problem. Um, I think you know, they, they, they aspire to have capacity. Um, however, you know, OPSEC or operational security, pardon me, uh, no inside baseball, um, for groups like uh, ISIS is still pretty weak. Uh, you know, people not turning off uh, location settings in Twitter has led to the targeting of U.S. precision guided ordnance on them. So I still am doubtful of the immediate capacity of a non-state actor in the Middle East to, to do enormous damage now. Um, what I always thought would be uh, an area of growth here is, is if there are movements in countries with greater levels of education, uh, especially in computing. So when you look at countries that can produce a lot of computer scientists, countries that have, you know, really well-established hacker culture. Um, these are the kind of groups that could really, really uh, make things frightening. So, um, you know, to use a 70s analogy, uh, I'm a little more worried about the Bader meinhof gang of, of cyberspace coming, you know, with, with highly motivated and skilled and educated programmers who really want to do damage, uh, rather than maybe some group that's coming out of the Middle East that's much less educated. Okay, thank you. Um, so uh, here's a question about sort of norms and, and international agreements. Some people think that the international community should formally adopt a set of norms to govern the use of cyber methods in armed conflict, uh, perhaps modeled on the Talon Manual. Other people think that's unrealistic and or unwise. Do you have any thoughts on, on that? Yes, uh, you know, Joe Nye has read a, uh, read, led a uh, cyber norms uh, a set of meetings now for, boy, I guess a, at least a decade. And in principle, norms on, on good behavior in cyberspace uh, are enviable. Um, I'd like them. Uh, but I also realize that uh, the, the John Seeley Brown comment about cyberspace not being beholden to nations and, and laws and governments is at this point poppycock. Um, but when we start talking about norms, I think what's difficult, I mean, we established norms for unconventional weapons after the Second World War. They were based on our enormous fear of what could go wrong with regard to escalatory chains and other problems like that. What, what I think the issue is here is that um, cyber weapons are just much more difficult to, uh, to identify the attacker, the attribution problem comes up. Um, and until issues like that are, are, are effectively put to bed, I think any norms uh, complex really depends on voluntary good behavior and drawing kind of clear lines on what is bad behavior. Uh, I think that the, the Microsoft initiative on this uh, that came out, I guess, earlier this year um, was enviable in its uh, scale and scope but has been criticized for being unrealistic. And the analogy I like to make um, with arms control in this space is not the nuclear one, but rather um, you know, things like small arms or landmines. 
you know, these are things that are easy to build. The com they're commodity technologies, basically, you know. And we have conventions on on small arms, uh, international conventions. We also have a hard time enforcing them because you know storing Kalashnikovs is much easier than storing mobile nuclear missiles. Um, so that's really where that's headed, I think. So I guess I hear you. If I could summarize it, I hear you sort of, you know cautiously optimistic that perhaps but but with you know the caveat that you know enforceability and and compliance might be difficult yes and i think as long as um you know this gets us to the cyber equities problem um this idea that intelligence agencies can learn about things that are wrong with with the internet ecosystem and they can either tell the world so they get that or the companies that have the problems so the problems get fixed or they can store those those vulnerabilities and right. wait the, the, to use the classic zero day issue, right? What do you what do you do with it once you know it's there, right? Yeah, so we don't even have a norm on that uh, that really sticks. Right. Uh, we have a process in the United States that you know I heard Admiral Rogers uh, outline a couple of years ago, and it, it's a good process, I believe, or he believed it for sure. Um, but it doesn't necessarily placate me on the on the reality that this is still a problem. Right. Okay. Well, more broadly, what about cyber keeps you up at night? What do you worry about in terms of cyber issues that we as a country are particularly exposed to? Well, there are a lot. Um, I, you know, looking at the kind of larger cyberspace as an information ecosystem in which people interact, um, some of the things that concern me now are, are more social in nature. I mean, uh, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is, is um, youth and kind of digital-only people, people who really are only interacting online now. Um, that's not a policy problem. Uh, it's not something that, that, uh, that we need, need to get the Pentagon working on. But this is something I see more and more. And, and and so the tie to cyber issues is is what? Well, essentially that you know we have an entire generation that has only you know has come of age only understanding the internet, only under, only seeing it work properly, um, and you know that I've had a number of experiences in the last few months that have really bothered me. In that when the computer goes down, there's an incapacity to do anything. Um, so that a cyber attack cannot be overcome with resourcefulness and uh, resiliency really concerns me. Um, and that is not a narrow band issue. That's a much broader, you know, it's basically we, you know, if we're on an airplane and the computer fails, there are two fairly well-qualified professional pilots up in the cockpit that will land the plane. Um, and I worry about a society in which there is too much on autopilot and that a cyber attack can break many of these things, and and the people who are ultimately running these systems or or just providing services have no capacity to deal with a life after a cyber attack. Right. Although, although, although I think in a major cyber attack where things like the financial system, you know, were down, then I think all of us would have. I mean, it's it's hard to even know how we would, you know, easily recover from, uh, you know, because these things these can these things can cascade pretty quickly, right? If the uh, if if you know one major infra infrastructure goes down, that can have cascading effects on many other infrastructures as well. So, 
Yeah, I mean, I think about the countries in Western Europe now and Central Europe that are trying to go to entirely cashless, like Norway's going to go entirely cashless by 20 something. Right. If that system goes down, then what, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, how, you know, we, we ditched our cash. So what, we're going to write each other promissory notes or something? I mean, so, right. you know, there, there, there is something nice about the old analog non cyber, you know, having a $20 bill, you know, you know, you know nobody can nobody can cyber attack that. Right. Yeah, I, I could still pay my cab fare with cash and, and, and get a ride, you know, and that really is what I, you know, is, you know, if we as a society go all digital, what are our fail safes? What what will be the backup plans? How does a system in which our you know our money system goes entirely digital at all levels? I think it almost um, already is in many levels, right? I mean, you know, oh, it's yeah. true that you can you can get the cash out of the ATM, but that's only the last link in the chain. Everything upstream of that is it can't work without digital, right? Right, and and I I am I am very concerned about. Um, you know, any sort of set of cyber incidents that would shake this to the core, you know, that our digital society could fail. And we're talking about, you know, a major attack on the financial system. You're talking about public panic. I mean, if there, if credit cards don't work in New York City tomorrow, what happens? Right. And it doesn't even have to be a major attack. I remember reading, uh, uh, I think maybe it was a half a decade ago, there was a, a power outage in, in the San Diego, or basically a lot of you know, southwestern United States, not, not didn't go to LA, but San Diego and actually mm-hmm. also across the border uh, outside the United States as well. But, you know, I remember reading that, you know, there are, for example, people who happened to be low on gas, you know, couldn't get gas because they couldn't, you know, pay for the gas because the pumps, you know, weren't working and they couldn't pay for the gas anyway because all they had was their, you know, debit or credit cards and, um, you know, air conditioning failed, which, you know, for some people is, is a minor nuisance, but in, you know, homes for senior citizens on a very hot day, that's, you know, a, a real health threat. And so yeah, all, sorts of, yeah, yeah. all sorts of things, you know, started to go south pretty quickly. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think that's right. I think it becomes, you know, extremely convenient and at the same time extraordinarily fragile when extraordinarily fragile when everything is uh, everything is digital which is 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 really where where it's starting to go yeah i mean it has been going but it's almost it's almost completely there you know so yeah vestiges we, of non-digital economy are, are rapidly disappearing yeah and and you know there's not a real eagerness in most countries i mean really the europeans are the leaders on regulation in so many of these areas the united states really doesn't regulate in this space very often. And then, you know, the, the other concern I have is, you know, if, if there is a major incident, um, you know, how does, um, you know, how does the national, you know, know, contingency planning we have cope with it? And I'm really not entirely convinced that, that we have national plans in place in the United States. You know, if there are major outages, of different critical infrastructures, you know, how does the United States respond short of calling out the National Guard? Right, and even, you know, it wouldn't even take long for the for things to get really problematic. I mean, for example, if you think about without power, you know, you've got maybe, you know, you have no internet, um, your your cell phone would at some point run out of run out of charge, uh, right? And and then, you know, you're catapulted back into sort of the, the you know, the mid 20th century in terms of your ability to get information. Right. Um, so, uh, and, you know, most people don't even have landlines or a lot of people don't even have landlines anymore. So that wouldn't even be a mechanism for getting information. Right. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I do, I, I won't say that anything keeps me up. Well, okay. Um, cyber attacks against nuclear arsenals keep me up at night. Um, uh, nuclear command and control, you know, I'd like there to be a global norm on that because um, that, you know, 
that is a, a unfathomably bad set of outcomes if if the nuclear command and control of a major nation state like China, the United States, Russia, France. Um, I guess Britain still has a new nuclear arsenal, but I'm not sure how they afford it. But but those systems, yes, I mean, um, you know, they're designed not to be compromised. But um, you know, what about the systems in India or Pakistan that are are used to you know control their nuclear arsenals? I'm not convinced those are safe. Let's 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 hope they are. Um, so let me move on to a question about deep fakes, uh, which um, which as, as as you know well, but but not everyone does, are mm-hmm. describes technology to create videos and other media that really seem to be real, uh, but aren't. So, for example, it can be used to create a video of a politician appearing to say something that he or she never in fact said, um, and that seems that that's already happening and that type of cyber information warfare is going to continue to advance technologically and it's obviously going to be used against U.S. interests. How, if at all, can we mitigate that? You know, I don't think there's a simple answer and this is an especially chilling area. I mean, and, and this is one of those questions where I don't really have a good guidepost from the policy literature or the legal literature. It's like, you know, most of what I know about deepfakes I read in science fiction novels when I was a teenager um, because it was, science fiction it was you can't make a fake video of a person that's convincing and then i saw the barack obama video that one of the companies uh, rendered and put out and it was you know we all you know we see impersonators all the time we we see comics do this but it's chilling when you know a a digital avatar of a leader a major world leader can be faked and um we now live in a society where the bar for truth is pretty low and the capacity for um outside uh you know characters to change um or really to influence and uh damage things i mean the thing i go back to it you know talk about a, a shallow fake a few years ago uh, uh there was a hack on twitter um of the associated press uh website and twitter account um, and uh, the Twitter account was was compromised, and the attacker sent a tweet that said the White House had been blown up and President Obama was injured. And you know the trading algorithms for uh, Wall Street saw that information and you know dumped stock and you know a significant percentage of the New York Stock Exchange uh, trades uh, pushed it downward. So. Even those kind of shallow fakes, I think, are a real concern. And, you know, that, that something can be, you know, unrecognizable as un, untrue or false or fake is very concerning. And right. at least... No, I was yeah. say, you've, almost, you've almost put your finger on what you can call sort of a perfect storm in the sense that, as you said, if, if the threshold for, you know, truth, just generally independent of cyber stuff, is, is, is lower, and, and at the same time, the technologies for creating apparently... You know, realistic looking thing your videos and things are getting higher than that sort of there that's two two trends both of which are moving in the same direction in the sense of making it more likely that such deep fakes will be viewed as true and convincing by people yeah i mean you know we we still have a number of very authoritarian governments around the world and you know imagine a time when uh you know uh the the authoritarian leader dies but is kept alive digitally in perpetuity that could happen uh it's crazy um you know it's uh it's 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 kind of a, a ultimate 
kind of uh, unreality play. But you know, um, after watching the Death of Stalin movie uh, that that uh, came out last year, it's it's very amusing to see how you know these these authoritarian regimes when the leader does die or is inca- incapacitated, what, what the heck do you do? And if you've got the capacity to fake it through it, you don't have to do anything for a while. Right, so maybe you think 30 or 40 years from now, the, 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 the leader will even appear on stage and people won't be sure whether it's really him or her or a hologram, right? Yeah, it could be a hologram. I mean, and th- that technology is going to get there and I think there's no question it will. Wow, okay. Here's a, I'm going to move on to a, a policy a legislation question. Um, so, Politicians on both sides of the aisle uh, agree that cybersecurity is of critical importance, and it's really one of the relatively few areas in which there's a real possibility of bipartisan legislation before the 2020 election, or for that matter, afterwards. Uh, Are there any specific cybersecurity challenges that you think should be best addressed legislatively? And and if so, what what are they? What, what, What crosses your mind? Well, there there have been a number of efforts to improve information sharing. Um, those those are hard. Um, I think really from a end user, you know, if if I'm running a security team in a large corporation, um, one of the things that I've gotten very well educated on is um, government to kind of corporate sharing of cybersecurity information. I've spent a lot of time looking at the the NCIC, the Department of Homeland Security's Cyber Information Center, or, uh, the, the body that pushes out information to corporations. And talking to the corporate folks who take in that information, they're, they're, they're generally glad to get it. But there's this whole secondary economy of companies that are doing the same job that they write big checks to. So, you know, no, I, I, I do get this feed from, from DHS, but I still want to pay FireEye uh, a substantial chunk of money to, to uh, send me different information that I might need. And I think this is a real problem where you have these private intelligence services uh, in the cyber uh, domain as well as government. So I think that, um, if, you know, if I could wave a magic wand, and I know this is, this is going to sound incredibly impractical, um, uh, one of the biggest things I think we need to solve legislatively in this country is the overclassification of information regarding cybersecurity. Um, and that's not an easy thing to fix. It's not something that's necessarily easy to do at the stroke of a pen. But because everything is classified at such a high level, government cannot have a meaningful conversation many times with um, public entities, private entities, um, you know, whether you're talking about a city government or a large corporation, you know, the federal government can't come in t- and talk to, you know, my city very effectively. You know, they can't, you know, they can't come roll in into Houston and say, here's our problem when it's, it's classified at the top secret level and in some compartment. So, you know, that's on my personal wish list. I don't think that's, a, you know, necessarily what would be a high priority for everybody. But for me, um, overclassification remains an enormous issue. Right, and of course, that you can we can appreciate the, the the challenge is that nobody wants to be the person. You know, it's with that with that it's 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 much safer to overclassify than underclassify if you're the person making the decision because you know, nobody wants to be the person who you know who who failed to assign a sufficiently high level of classification or, or failed to classify designate something as classified when in fact it should have been. So people obviously have a natural tendency to err on the side of being conservative there. Exactly. And I don't think that's going to go away, but 
But when you talk about organizing and marshalling all the resources, I mean, now, and the, and the second component of this is, you know, we train a lot of people. Now, workforce, I think, is the big discussion point of the moment on cybersecurity. Every company has said, you know, we need cybersecurity people. We hear these statistics that a million people with a, a CISSP certificate are needed by the workforce. You know, and I, I take this with a grain of salt, but clearly we have a, a gap in workforce when my, you know, my, my graduate students go off on the job market and are, you know, they're, they're playing hardball with Fortune 100 companies saying, well, you know, those guys are going to pay me X dollars and, you know, you're not coming up to snuff. So clearly there's a value in workforce too, but um, I'm not sure that that is this, you know, that seems like something that can be solved in a shorter amount of time. Okay. And I guess my final question is you know, just about sort of cybersecurity, you know, as an arms race, which in some ways it is, you know, and just you know, stepping back uh, with respect to defending U.S. interests from cyber threats from foreign adversaries, that specific question, what kind of grade do you give us? I mean, how are we doing? Are we staying on top of the threats? Are we falling behind? Anything we can do better? Any sort of top line takeaways on sort of that issue? Yeah, I think that looking at you know, 15 years or so of engaging on this issue, and I'm lucky to have been in the office at the State Department that uh, was involved with the WikiLeaks uh, issue. Um, you know, the SIPTIS cable system was uh, worked on by colleagues of mine. Uh, so we've had these mega breaches for a long time. And I think that's one thing that um, I'm hoping that we will see improvement. You know, my big picture sentiment remains this. I think that most of the technical problems that lead to cybersecurity negative outcomes can be solved and can be solved in our lifetime. We will build better AI informed software that patches systems. We will build better machine learning algorithms for recognizing malicious binaries as they come across, you know, uh, a network boundary. But, but, but um, won't the attackers get better as well in the sense that, I mean, that's the challenge, right? Right. You know, it's this count, measure, countermeasure, counter, right. countermeasure struggle, which ends up being really expensive. But I think a lot of the technical features can be fixed uh, that we deal with today. Now, the, the two problems are this. Yes, the attackers get better. And the other problem is, um, you know, if you look at the biggest picture, um, Silicon Valley still wants to evolve all these new things that you're going to want. Um, you know, venture capital is not chasing after cybersecurity companies the same way it's chasing after, you know, the next, uh, you know, unicorn not yet publicly traded corporation. I don't, I don't hear a lot of, about cybersecurity companies that are unicorns. I hear a lot about companies that are involved in like delivering me food that are unicorns right. or delivering me food and sinking on my Netflix to it or something. I don't know. Right. Not, not all of them are going to stay unicorns. Right, right. So, so really, I, I think that because the bad guys are effective and keep getting better, uh, that is a problem. But, but the evolving infrastructure is i would say probably the hardest thing to to make sure bets about the future on security because you know it used to be that you know corporations would say oh that social media thing we're just gonna block that at the firewall no one uses that and then you know 10 years later it's like well how do you do business and marketing without using facebook so i think those are the issues that we're going to have to wrap our, our heads around and then, you know, kind of the final piece, I would argue, is um, 
the value of true and, co and correct information. You know, I got to meet uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan when I was a graduate student and, you know, he was uh, riffing on his book on, on secrecy and truth. Um, and, you know, he has this, you know, famous quote that I'm paraphrasing that, you know, you know, we are entitled to our opinions, but they're, they should be based on the same set of facts. And I guess, you know, when you talk about deep fakes and influence operations, um, you know, the proliferation of information. So we have much more information than we've ever had before. And, and everyone likes to make these comparisons about X zettabytes of information are created every you know, period of time. And, you know, the flip side is a lot of the information being created is wrong. It's maybe just outright untruth um, and, and just hooey. Um, yet people believe it because they look at a screen and they read a story and it's well, well organized and they say, well, that must be true. Um, whereas, you know, the, the bar for is this true when I was, you know, a college student was, well, I read the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and they both say this happened. Seems like it happened. And when I get my economist, you know, on Monday, if it says so, I'm going to just going to assume it's true. Now it's, you know, the, the, the complete um, disaggregation of, of, of news media has made us very vulnerable, I think, to misinformation. Yeah, no, that's a really good observation. So, all right, well, this has been really helpful. Any closing observations you'd like to make? Uh, you know, I, I, think, I think we have some interesting time coming forward with um, public uh, scrutiny of the social, social media companies, the idea of, of our information having value. And so, you know, the other piece of this all is the economics of, of information. And, you know, that, that Facebook has basically become a marketing company, uh, an ad company. Google has become an ad company based on people giving them lots of information. And, you know, in return, what do people get? Well, they get a service, I guess, but but is that service worth it? So, so I think there's also an economic issue that's. And of course, you know, Facebook and Google are free for a reason, which is we're paying with information, right? This is there's no mystery there. No, no, no mystery there. And I, I, I'm very curious to see if people will start walking away from such things. Interesting. Okay. Well, really, really appreciate these perspectives, and uh, thank you very much for uh, being on the podcast. Thank you very much, John. It was a pleasure. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts and ideas from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org.